electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, COVID's long-haul effects. There's a troubling new study on the virus. We'll talk to former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. It is concerning to see what appears to be a pretty consistent loss of brain tissue in patients with COVID. And marking our newest federal holiday, Juneteenth. I think this will go down for me. It's one of the greatest honors. I will have had as president. 155 years after enslaved African Americans were informed of their freedom, we're still working on black financial equity and inclusion. Darren Williams, CEO of one of the country's few black-led banks, Southern Bank Corps. This is an important day for America. And of course, I can understand why as quickly as this holiday was passed by Congress, why they may not be closed today. But I sure hope that they recognize and give honor and respect to this national holiday going forward in years to come. Those stories and the rest of the headlines that got us talking from commodities to Carnival Cruise. It's Friday, June 18th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. We're going to start things off on this Friday. First up today, something investors are watching closely, the price of a wide range of commodities, from corn to copper, tracking for big weekly declines after months of gains. The rally in basic goods, food, and in materials, all the stuff you need to make things like cars and houses, had been fueled by expected demand as economies around the world and as consumers emerged from the pandemic. The rise was dramatic. This drop shows just how complex the big reopening will be. Lumber down more than 14%. Corn and platinum both down more than 6%. By the way, the losses for the week, Andrew, were quite a bit steeper yesterday. Um, we saw two things at play here. First, on Wednesday, we saw the Chinese government really making moves to try and end some of these high prices that we've seen, right. saying that they've released some, uh, some, some metals uh, to make sure that prices, some stock, metals from their stockpiles, things like copper and aluminum. And then the big thing was really the Fed this week. The dollar, you saw strengthen on the part of that, on the Fed news, the idea that uh, rates were becoming raised higher than people had pre- previously anticipated. Uh, so you saw a bunch of movement on that. Uh, things have evened out a bit, but you're still seeing some pressure on all of those commodities that had run up so much over the last several months. And I don't know if you saw Jim Cramer saying he thinks that commodity inflation, it's not even transitory, he thinks it's over. So, yeah, I, I, uh, look, I, let, let's hope. The unbelievable spikes we've seen in these things, but the Fed really is making more of a statement that has strengthened the dollar, and that's doing right. a lot to pressure some of these commodity prices, too, because these commodity prices are all done in dollars. Um, when the dollar strengthens, that's good news in terms of bringing those prices back down from those sky-high levels. Let's talk about uh, this study uh, out of the UK um, about COVID, because it suggests there could be some long-term uh, loss of brain tissue from COVID 
for those who have gotten it, which could have long-term consequences. Dr. Gottlieb said the destruction of brain tissue could explain why COVID patients lost their sense of smell. There's been lots of conversations, even to this very day, about whether uh, you should get vaccinated or you shouldn't get vaccinated. And there are people who think that, uh, you know, younger kids might not want to get vaccinated, uh, that they, I, I know parents who think maybe it's better that they get COVID. Um, and I think the answer is starting to become clearer and clearer uh, that vaccination may be uh, the right answer. But we'll talk to Dr. Scott, Lee, Scott Gottlieb about that. You think you know parents who think it's better that they get COVID, kind of like chicken pox, when people used to take their kids I, to go get I know, chicken pox? I, I, I know parents who, who have a view that, uh, unfortunately, because yeah, it's, it's not my view, but, uh, you know, to each his own, that, um, that they're not prepared right now if the vaccine was available for their child to get to get the vaccination. And so, I mean, we know we know adults uh, who have the same view. Hmm. But I, I think as more and more data comes out about the the impact and effects of uh, the disease, uh, there are more and more questions about uh, about the implications of getting it. Yeah, I have a lot of questions for, for Dr. Gottlieb on this, too. Um, he said you could compensate, your brain could compensate. But if you lose the tissue that was previously letting you get your sense of smell, I mean, is that just a permanent loss? Can, is there no way to eventually compensate for that? I just don't understand how, how that all works. But we have him coming up and we'll get a, a chance to ask him a right. lot of these questions. Uh, separately, by the way, there's a new warning out on the COVID Delta variant that was originally discovered in India. The World Health Organization says that it's now been detected in 80 countries and continues to mutate as it spreads. It now makes up 10 percent of all new cases in the United States. That's up from just 6 percent last week. Data suggests that the Delta variant is around 60 percent more transmissible than the U.K. variant. And scientists in London are warning that the symptoms can be different. The top reported symptom is headache, followed by sore throat, runny nose and fever. Younger people report experiencing much more of a bad cold or a funny off feeling. Analysis released earlier this week showed that the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca vaccines are highly effective against hospitalization if you get that Delta variant. Big companies are hiring for remote positions that can be performed in any state in the U.S. except, you ready for this, Colorado. That's because a new Colorado law requires companies with even a few employees in the state to disclose the expected salary or pay range for each open role they advertise. The rule's aim is to narrow gender wage gaps and create pay transparency, but companies are trying to avoid making that pay data public. A website called Colorado Excluded tracks job listings that say the work cannot be done in Colorado and found such posts from companies including Cardinal Health, DocuSign, Twitter, Hilton, uh, and Box uh, on that list. Last month, a judge ended up upholding the law against a legal challenge from a hiring trade group, the journal piece, also noting that many companies, including Amazon, uh, do now uh, include uh, pay information specific to Colorado on remote job postings. Huh. What do you make of that, Becky Quick? Well, that's the law of unintended consequences. If you now have employers saying you can work anywhere you want except for Colorado, unless right. other states pick up that same law, in which case it becomes a more broadly held thing and, and then it's going to get a, a little more complicated. These companies won't be able to avoid necessarily. If you have other big states that kind of pick up on the same thing, then it would be a different story. Uh, where do you stand on the law itself, though? Because that's, to me, I'm even torn. more thorny. Yeah, I, I, I'm torn. I, I get it. I, I, 
how can you possibly know if, if there's a quality, if there, there are equal pay that's going out unless you are making these figures public? But at the same time, I understand why companies don't want to do that because, um, you know, you've got a million different reasons for why somebody makes the salary they make. Um, is it over the time that they've been there? Been there? Is it over the experience they have from other places that they've brought in? Is it the timing? Just you know, sometimes you're lucky with timing. You come in at a good time when it's a, a tough job market where employers are really fighting for talent, and maybe you get paid more at that time. Employers want the flexibility. They want. They don't want to have to come and go with it. But I, I don't know how you ever can kind of solve for that question of equality without transparency. So it, it's complicated. I think I'm with you. I don't know what I don't know what the right answer is. Yeah. I, you kind of want to know in the broad aggregate terms, perhaps. I am not a believer. I know there's some companies now that are, are making, you know, um, salaries public. I mean, literally individual salaries public. But mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure not what for, the right for, answer for is. For everybody or just for people who earn a lot of money? No, They're, no, no. There are now there's a bunch of companies out there that are now making it policy. Hmm. It's, it's sort of a. It, uh, an age of transparency, the argument is just we're going to tell everybody what everybody makes. Everybody knows. So there's no uh, gossiping by the water cooler or gossiping on Slack. We're just going to tell everybody what, every, what everybody's doing. And it's then weird. there's a lot that of other companies like a, that these That seems days. like a bit of an invasion of privacy at a time when you're not even allowed to ask somebody if they have a COVID vaccine. <laughs> you're going to tell them how much well, they make. I, I think in those circumstances, it's when you take the job, you know, going in what the arrangement is. A lot of those people seem to like it. Um, it's it, in a way it's actually humble prevented. Brag. Well, I don't know if it's a humble brag or not. Actually, I think it's it's in a way it's the opposite. But it's almost um, I don't want to say it's a form of unionization because we're going to get into a sort of different type of debate. But yeah. it, it it sort of I, I think some of the companies do it to prevent. It sort of has the same effect in a way uh, yeah. because of the transparency. I don't know. It, it, I don't it's know what the right Usually, you know, transparency, it's hard to argue against transparency in, in any situation. But when you dig through what that would mean, especially in companies where it's built up over years and, and you know, it, it, you, you can imagine the bad feelings unless they were very able to quickly equalize everybody's pay. I know some smaller companies that have done that. And I think it's a good thing if you find out that, you know, all of the women or all of, you know, whatever, whatever group is being left behind, then it, I think it's probably a good thing. So it's hard to argue against the transparency. I know it's complicated, but I guess it's hard to argue against the transparency. Boeing's biggest 737 MAX model is reportedly set to take its initial flight as soon as today. It will mark another milestone and a comeback since the fleet's lengthy grounding a- According to these reports, the MAX 10 will be the first 737 model to take its maiden flight since U.S. regulators cleared the runway back in November. The jetliner is not expected to enter commercial service until 2023, I guess right about the time the Fed starts raising rates. But it will provide some extra leeway as Boeing works with regulators. And if you check out Boeing shares this morning, they're up by about nine-tenths of a percent to $241.35 a share. You jump on one of those planes when you when you book, Becky. Do you ever look at the plane? Nope. You you don't. I don't think. I, I, I think most people don't, right? No, I, I I think I don't know. It's there's so many other things going on. Sometimes after the fact, I wonder what I've been booked on. But while I'm doing it, I never think of it. This I know you won't book yourself on because we've had cruise conversations before. <laughs> uh, Carnival Cruise Line uh, owned uh, Princess Cruises says it plans to resume service without Becky on on, on board. 
uh, from Los Angeles, San Francisco and Fort Lauderdale uh, as soon as this fall. Uh, Becky, I'm in there with you. So don't, I'm not I'm not leaving you out there by yourself. I, I'm not on this. But I'm not on this cruise line either. Uh, the announcement comes after collaboration with government officials and evolving guidance from the CDC, which earlier this week eased its stance on travel safety for vaccinated passengers. Carnival shares have been on a hot streak this year and this morning. And it is not because I think I'm going to get COVID on the on board. It is because I'm just not a, a uh, cruise guy. Cruise, I, cruise kind of boat person. I don't think. I, the only but time I that haven't I've really ever done it, so I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I haven't done it either. The only time I'd considered doing it was to do to book a cruise to Alaska because I think it's the best way right. to really That's see. That's the best way to do it. A, a, a lot of, of Alaska. The best ways. So yep. there was a time when I considered it. My dad's never been to Alaska. And that would be one fun trip. We did Alaska without the cruise. So it is doable. We can talk offline if, okay. if we want to talk Alaska trips. Up next, COVID could be linked to long-term brain tissue loss in patients. Dr. Scott Gottlieb says that could explain the loss of smell. Seeing anatomical changes as a result of a virus in the brain like this is concerning, and I think it does change the equation a little bit in terms of how we think about vaccination and natural infection. I think this is a virus you want to try to avoid. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This is Squawk Pod. Roll, pray, track, take. Thank you, Andrew. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe's off today. There's a new study from the UK that shows that there may be a link uh, connecting the coronavirus and long-term loss of brain tissue. Joining us right now to talk more about the findings is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's a former FDA commissioner, of course, and a CNBC contributor. He also serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And Scott, it's good to have you here this morning. I, I was digging a little deeper into this. I know there are concerns because this is a very small study, but, but it does show um, that there is potentially some, some brain matter loss, especially the gray matter in the frontal lobe when you're comparing different patients. What, what did you think about the study? Right. And the study is getting a lot of attention in medical circles because it was a well-done study, despite the fact that it was a small study, as you noted. Um, in the United Kingdom, what they do is they have a big biobank. So they follow a large cohort of people prospectively, and they subject them to different testing over time as a way to just track people and look at different health outcomes. And so they went back to that biobank and they looked at people who had scans of their brain. And then they stratified them based on those who eventually developed COVID and those who did not. And when they looked at the people who developed COVID, 
they found pretty consistent loss of brain tissue, cortical matter, in regions of the brain that are adjacent to the parts that are responsible for things like smell. So this could partially explain why some people who have COVID experience a loss of smell. They may actually be experiencing some damage to the parts of the brain that are associated with the, um, the smell function. But it would also suggest that there could be other um, other sequelae, uh, other other effects of this loss of brain tissue. Now, it's not clear what the clinical impact was of this. They didn't correlate it with the symptoms that these patients experienced. And it's not clear how durable it is. They didn't follow these patients over time to see if some of this loss of tissue regenerated. But we know there's limited plasticity in the brain. It's unlikely that all of this is going to regenerate. And so it is concerning to see what appears to be a pretty consistent loss of brain tissue in patients with COVID. And the final point is that the, um, the loss of the tissue didn't correlate with the symptom severity. So it was pretty uniform across the patient population. Patients who were more sick and hospitalized didn't seem to be any worse off than patients who had milder symptoms. I just took a quick glance on it. I thought it was only they were comparing patients who actually required oxygen therapy with those who didn't require oxygen therapy. I mean, that, because if, if that's the case, that would kind of seem like, OK, that makes sense to me. If you have lo loss of oxygen to the brain, that would certainly lead to more brain damage. Um, it was looking across a broad population. Now, it could be the case that the the effects that we're seeing, so this loss of tissue, is some kind of microvascular effect. And so what's happening is the virus is having some impact on the microvasculature, and that's actually leading to a loss of tissue. We know COVID is a very vascular disease. We're hmm. finding out all the time impacts that it's having on the vascular system. This could be another manifestation of that. You know, it's unclear how durable it is. When I spoke to doctors last night, they wanted to see these patients followed up over a longer period of time. And it's unclear what impact it's having, if it's actually having an impact on function. But seeing anatomical changes as a result of a virus in the brain like this is concerning. And I think it does change the equation a little bit in terms of how we think about vaccination and natural infection. I think this is a virus you want to try to avoid. Meaning that you would recommend it for kids, too, because the CDC is having that meeting today, their outside committee, on, on all the risks associated potentially with the vaccines from heart issues and other, uh, other ideas. You would say that this uh, puts a little more weight on the idea that, that, yes, you should go ahead and get these vaccines? I think that that's the case. I think this tips, um, you know, the equation more in favor of vaccination for kids who were presumed to be at lower risk. I think also the Delta variant does that as well, which seems to be more contagious and perhaps more pathogenic. So I think the accruing evidence tips heavily in favor of vaccination. And for those who still say, and there's a small number of people who still say, well, you know, it's COVID doesn't seem that bad. I'll acquire immunity through natural infection. I don't think that that's a sound judgment. I think that if you have the opportunity to acquire immunity through vaccination, you haven't had COVID, you should take that opportunity. The Delta variant that you bring up is concerning because we did see a big jump in the number of Delta cases here in the United States. I think it was 6% a week ago of all cases were the Delta variant, and now it's 10%. What, um, how concerned should we be about that? What, what's kind of the tra trajectory that we should expect? Yeah, there's some good modeling floating around, um, you know, policy circles. It was put out on the 15th that shows that as we get into uh, early fall, we're going to see a resurgence in infection. The modeling looked at different scenarios in terms of the overall vaccination rate in the population and compared 75 percent of the eligible population being vaccinated by November, which is probably where we'll land, 
versus 85 percent. And it found in the scenario where only 75 percent of the eligible population is vaccinated by the end of November, you do see a resurgence of infection in the early fall, starting in September, certainly not at levels that we experienced last year. Now, when you break this down and you look across the different states, there's wide divergence. So, for example, in Connecticut, there's no uptick in infections in the fall. But in states like Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, Missouri, states that have lower vaccination rates, you see a sharp uptick. And the national trend is being driven by a handful of states. And so I think what's likely to happen this fall is we're likely to see very regional effects in states that have low vaccination rates. We're likely to see more of an upsurge. Now, that said, all of these models, in my view, don't adequately bake in the impact of natural immunity. They do try to do it to some extent, but I think they underestimate the impact of people who have acquired immunity through natural infection. So I don't think that the effect is going to be quite as stark as some of these models perhaps show. But it does show an upsurge in the fall, and it's pretty consistent across the different models, which at this point have become more reliable because we've learned how to model this infection. With that as the backdrop, and, and you realize that when kids go back to school in, in, in late August or early September, Anybody under age 12 won't have been vaccinated. And we've kind of been talking around this. You know, people think it's not as dangerous for kids. But with this, uh, the Delta variant in the backdrop and with what you just said about the study for it potentially uh, cutting into the, the or making you lose brain matter, that those are a little more concerning. What would you say to people as kids are going back to school in the fall? Are we going to have to keep the same restrictions in place with the masks and, and, and everything else until that population is vaccinated, too? Well, look, at some point, hopefully we will have a vaccine available to children under the age of 12, a lower dose vaccine that Pfizer is working on right now. Moderna is also working on a, a vaccine for younger kids. I think that as long as we take certain steps in the schools to avoid outbreaks and if we have a high vaccination rate among adults, I think it's going to substantially reduce the risk among kids. What we've seen in different countries, Israel, the U.K., for example, is that when the adults get vaccinated, the risk of outbreaks in children goes down substantially because in many cases, kids are catching the infection from adults, not from other kids. So hmm. I think that there is a way to create a safe environment for kids in the school this fall by vaccinating the adults in the community and also taking some steps in the schoolhouse setting to uh, implement mitigation to avoid outbreaks in a schoolhouse setting. More than what we've seen this year, because I, I think a lot of people feel like, OK, next year is going to be a more normal year. Is that not the case, at least for the beginning of the school year? I think it will feel like a more normal year for most people. I think that in some school districts, you're going to see schools start the fall with some mitigation in place. Now, you know, a lot of this is falling along um, political debates around the country. But I think it's likely to be the case that many schools will start the year with some form of social distancing and perhaps masks in schools where states allow it. And that, that wouldn't be um, imprudent. I think it might be a prudent thing to do heading into the fall when we don't know what the situation is going to look like and whether or not this new Delta variant is going to lead to the resurgence that's being modeled right now. If it does, we're probably not going to see it until we start to get into September. That's what the models show. I think this summer is relatively secure. Even though the Delta variant is going to become the most prevalent strain this summer, I think it's still going to be relatively low levels and we really don't face the risk until kids start to go back into the school. Remember when we saw the outbreaks in Michigan, for example, when we saw that big resurgence of infection in Michigan, a lot of that spread was driven by schools when schools reopened. So the schools have shown that they can be a source of community spread if you don't take prudent steps to avoid outbreaks in those settings. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. Always great talking to you and have a, have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. Cheese will be next.
Next on Squawk Pod, Juneteenth, our newest federal holiday, and a look at black representation in our financial system. We'll talk about the unbanked, the underbanked, and equity with the CEO of one of the few black-led banks in the U.S., Southern Bank Corps' Darren Williams. The systemic issues that black and brown people face across America, that same thing holds true for black-owned banks and for mission-focused banks. And so it just reflects the same type of problems and inequalities. That- this podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Tomorrow is Juneteenth, recognized for 155 years and now a national holiday. A Juneteenth of action. All right. On Thursday, President Biden signed the Juneteenth bill into law, making it the first new federal holiday since Martin Luther King Day was established in 1983. Juneteenth commemorates the day in 1865 that enslaved African-Americans in Galveston, Texas, were finally informed of their freedom two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And in the century and a half since, Black Americans have been celebrating this end of slavery in different ways, including parades and barbecues and pilgrimages to Galveston. Last year, in the wake of social unrest protesting the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and dozens of other black and brown victims of racial violence. Some companies gave employees the day off for reflection and emancipation celebration. Amazon, Twitter, Nike, Target, and Best Buy among them. Emancipation, though, should have always come with economic freedoms. So for many, the holiday has become an opportunity to highlight the importance of economic equality and financial inclusion. The legacy of slavery and systemic racism is built into the foundation of our banking system, and we still have a ways to go to undo it. CNBC reporter Frank Holland joined us this morning. Black banks have gained an additional $1.5 billion in lending power since the death of George Floyd, created by a $150 million increase in equity capital generated by large financial institutions investing in them and higher deposits. Those banks offer more than 85% of their loans to black home and business owners, according to the National Black Bank Foundation, really highlighting the socioeconomic impact of black banks. Mortgage lenders deny black applicants at a rate 80% higher than white applicants, according to data collected by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Black business owners are more than two times as likely to be denied financing than white owners, according to brand new research from McKinsey. We spoke with the co-founder of the National Black Bank Foundation, who was emphasizing to large corporations that every dollar invested with a black bank turns into $10 of capital that might not otherwise be available for black borrowers. So every corporation out there, if, if, if their values are on paper and their press releases are saying that they support equity, they support opportunity for all, then they need to think about those institutions in the black community that are fighting that fight every day and allow black banks to compete for the business. In December, the National Black Bank Foundation facilitated facilitated a historic deal between the NBA's Atlanta Hawks and a syndicate of 18 black banks to provide $35 million in financing for a new team practice facility. 
The co-founder says BMO Bank, the official bank of the NBA's Milwaukee Bucks, at the team's request, is actively working with black banks to help them generate more equity capital. Back over to you. Hey, Frank, before you go, uh, black banks have seen what seems like a big influx in capital over the last year. Is that expected to fix some of these disparities that we're seeing on the lending side at this point? Well, you know, Andrew, yes and no. Um, for the people who have uh, the ability to access those 18 black banks, absolutely. But uh, there are actually so many fewer, about a third fewer black banks than there were just a few decades ago. So the access to those banks has decreased, but the lending power of the banks that do exist, that's increased. Okay. Frank Holland, appreciate it. Joining us uh, to discuss uh, what it means to serve underbanked communities and the importance of investing in financial institutions that can reach them is Darren Williams is the CEO of Southern Bank Corp. Southern uh, has over a billion dollars in assets and serves predominantly black, rural and agricultural communities. Darren, it's great to see you uh, this morning. Just listening to Frank, I'm curious if you would opine on why you think there are so many fewer black owned banks today than there were in the 1950s and 60s. Well, first of all, Andrew, thank you for having us on uh, today. I think this is an important, uh, really, question. So when you think about uh, the uh, structural inequalities in society, the kind of the, the systemic issues that um, black and brown people face across uh, America, uh, that same thing holds true for uh, uh, black-owned uh, banks uh, and for mission-focused banks. And so uh, it's, it just reflects the same type of problems, inequalities that we see in America. It's why you see fewer and fewer black banks today. And, and what do you think of the efforts, I'm curious, of some of the big banks in America today? Because uh, there are lots of advertising campaigns and slogans and whatnot. And I'm curious how you look at how you look at them in relation to some of the work that you're doing, for example. Yeah. So right now, uh, minority deposit institutions, black banks and CDFI banks, we are a community development financial institution. Andrew, and as you said, we serve the Arkansas, Mississippi Delta, which has a large percentage uh, as African-Americans. While we're not necessarily a black bank, we are a mission-focused bank, and we focus on building wealth for everyone. And we particularly focus on products that we know will reach people who have been left out and left behind from the financial mainstream. And so really appreciate uh, that corporate America, large Wall Street banks, and others are choosing to invest and partner with us. Uh, and true, when you make those equity investments, as your last guest uh, mentioned, uh, that's you know that turns over uh, creates about 10% leverage uh, in the markets that we serve. And so we will make sure that those African-American communities, those disenfranchised communities, those communities that have been left out and left behind will have access to that. But we really uh, not only want those banks to partner with us through equity, want them also to look at their lending policies, look and see what's holding them back, denying them from providing access to capital and credit for those who've been left behind. Uh, but we do welcome their partnership. And, and what do you make of some of the large corporations over the last year? I'm thinking of Netflix and others who've decided to deposit uh, some of their money in uh, mission-driven banks and and how that relates. You know, you talked about equity. There's, so there's the deposit issue on one side and then there's the equity issue on the other. <clears throat> yeah, so that's important as well. Uh, you know, a deposit, of course, builds a relationship. And what banks do, they take those deposits and they relend those in the markets that they serve. So those deposits right. are important. Uh, right now, uh, most banks are kind of flush with deposits. And so it's really that equity capital that will allow you to actually build leverage uh, and actually expand and increase and grow. And so we're proud. Of course, Bank of America has made a multi-million dollar investment in, in Southern Bank Corp. But most recently, Square uh, has made a multi-million dollar investment and really appreciate Square because it is a leading uh, payments and financial technology uh, business, uh, one of the most innovative businesses. And we really think the way we scale our business, the way we reach more and more black and underserved communities is through technology. So we're excited about the possibility to partner with them, not only the equity investment, but to learn from them in the financial technology space. 
But speak to the equity issue, which is how, I mean, to the extent that you've identified what are clearly challenges and hurdles, you know, what the, the investment world needs to do to, to almost open up these opportunities. Well, that's got to pay attention. You've got to be intentional. Uh, you know, you really can't solve this problem without being intentional. So I applaud what, again, those Wall Street banks are doing, what other corporations are doing, being intentional and saying we want to work with, we want to partner, we want to do business with uh, mission-focused banks that are intentionally trying to bridge the gap that we see in, in, uh, in, 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 in racial wealth. We want to try to tear down those systems and those structures that deny access to capital for many people. Of course, uh, you know, the FDIC has a study that says that you know, 15.8% of African Americans and about 12.2% of Hispanics don't have a basic bank account. They're unbanked. Uh, we've got to move those people into the mainstream because if you get them in the financial mainstream, they're going to have an impact on the economy. That's going to help everyone. Darren, I have a, a final question, a bit of a curveball. Uh, now yeah. that Juneteenth is going to be a national holiday, should the markets close for Juneteenth? As you know, there are national holidays where the markets are closed, and then there are national holidays where the markets are not closed. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I, I think it's important that we recognize the past. Uh, if you don't sometimes recognize the past, you're deemed to repeat it. This is an important day for America. Uh, and of course, I can understand why uh, as quickly as this holiday was was passed uh, by Congress, why they may not be closed today. But I sure hope that they recognize and give honor uh, and respect to uh, this national holiday going forward in years to come. And I, obviously, I would love to see them uh, close. We sure will do that as a, as a financial institution. Darren, uh, it is great to see you. Uh, we appreciate uh, your time, your perspective uh, on this important day. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. That's Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Thank you for being here. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And have questions or feedback or just want to tell us how much you love Squawk Pod? Write a review on Apple Podcasts or tweet us at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.